Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This week, just like last week, we're dealing with topics in paleontology, and I'm pumped to talk to this week's guest. I got to sit down with Dr. Karen Chin, who is a professor and curator of paleontology at the University of Colorado's Museum of Natural History, And she's got some really interesting things to say about some unusual fossils. So you may want to grab your digging tools because we're going to be talking about coprolites. So you may be wondering what a coprolite actually is. And you're going to find that out shortly in my interview with Karen. I can bet that you never even thought about these types of fossils before, but they can tell us so much about prehistoric organisms like the dinosaurs. Dr. Chin got her doctorate at the University of Santa Barbara, and she's one of the leading paleontologists in the world when it comes to coprolites. You can even find her being talked about in National Geographic, The Washington Post, and NOVA. And not only that, But she also studies ancient ecosystems as a whole, especially during the Mesozoic era, which just happens to be the time period that the dinosaurs were around in. Okay, I know you guys are dying to find out what coprolites are and what insights Karen can give us about the Mesozoic era. So stick around because you'll get to hear my interview with her right after the break. The person that I want to recognize in this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Daniel Hale Williams. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1856, and he got his degree at Northwestern University Medical School. And his work in medicine was just groundbreaking. Because he was a black man, he wasn't allowed to work in private hospitals, so he founded Provident Hospital, and this was the first non-segregated hospital in America. His achievements don't stop there, though, because he's credited as performing the first successful open-heart surgery. He was also a member of the Chicago Surgical Society and the American College of Surgeons. Williams changed the world of heart surgery as we know it today, and for that, we should be grateful. If you want to learn more about Daniel Hale Williams or this series, check out onwildlife.org. Okay, we're back. Here's my interview with Dr. Karen Chin. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Um, Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to join you, and I'm doing fine. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Well, let's get right into it. So um, first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in paleontology? Yes, I am a professor of geological sciences at the University of Colorado, Boulder, 
And I'm also at the same university. I'm curator of paleontology at the university's Museum of Natural History. That's awesome. And the, the, the story of how I came into paleontology is a little bit convoluted because even though I loved dinosaurs when I was growing up, I did not think I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was growing up. I love all of the natural world. I love plants. I love animals. I love soils and geology. And so I became a naturalist with the National Park Service, a seasonal um, park interpreter. And but somewhere along the way, I, I did. I was in graduate school when I met Jack Horner, who is the dinosaur paleontologist that everybody knows was the original inspiration for uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, really? Well, well, the movie anyway. <laughs> the movie version of Jurassic Park. Yes. And I, be, I met him and I started working for him at the Museum of the Rockies in, in, at the Montana State University. And somewhere along the way, I fell in love with paleontology and just couldn't get enough. And I learned I was asking the same questions about ancient life as I am interested in in asking about modern life. So that's why it's a little bit convoluted because in the beginning, I couldn't understand why would anybody want to study extinct things? I mean, (laughs) they're, they're gone. You can't go out there and look at them. But it's it's really intriguing. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we're going to get into talking later about how we can relate uh, today's animals with maybe uh, uh, organisms of the past. So I'm excited to talk about that. Uh, but first, so you do a lot of research on these things called coprolites. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and how they become fossilized? Yes, Uh Coprolites or coprolites are fossilized feces. Yeah, you heard that right. We're talking about dinosaur poop. And when I first learned that some feces had become fossilized, I was really surprised. It seems counterintuitive to think that that something as soft and ephemeral as feces or dung could be fossilized. But if the conditions are right, they can be fossilized. And it's actually from from our research and the research of many different people, it seems that bacteria play an important role. Even though bacteria can decompose feces, they change the chemical uh, conditions around um, within, within certain substrates and they can actually facilitate mineralization. So it seems kind of funny that we have fossilized species, probably because of the role of bacteria in helping to decompose them. And also when you think about it, feces are basically bags of bacteria. So there are lots of bacteria (laughs) that are there to help fossilize them. That's amazing. You'd never think because bacteria are decomposers. So you would think that they would get rid of it, but that's, that's amazing. Yes. Um, and is there a way of identifying which coprolites come from which organisms? Now that's a really good question. 
coprolite study is very challenging for a couple of reasons. One, first of all, you don't have a a clear recurring shape like you have with bones or teeth or shells or leaves. Feces are stretchy and they break <laughs> and they they don't hold their shape. So when you find something that you think may be fossil feces, it doesn't have a a a real it it often does not have a real recognizable shape. It can be deformed. And so the very first question when we're studying feces is, um, is this actually fossil feces or is it just a rock shaped <laughs> that has a fecal <laughs> shape or was it created some other way? So actually, that's the first question we ask. And we look at the, the contents. We look at the sometimes the shape, but not so much. And we look at the chemical composition and other factors to, to try to figure out if something is fossilized feces. Then the second question is the one you just asked. Okay, if it's fossilized feces, who actually made it? <laughs> and this is really challenging. I would have to say, in most cases, we do not know who produced the feces. In other words, we don't know who dung it. <laughs> okay, I just had to throw that in there. Okay. <laughs> and that's because fecal shapes are so similar. Lots of different animals can produce the same shapes and sizes of, of feces. So we have to consider other characteristics that can tell us or at least give us clues about who might have produced it. <laughs> the biggest clue is size. And that is because if you have a very large mass, fecal mass, we know it couldn't have been produced by a mouse-sized animal, right? Uh-huh. On the other hand, if you have a really large animal like an elephant that produces feces, it can break apart. So you can have a little chunk and that can be produced by a large animal. So I like working on dinosaur coprolites because they're so large that <laughs> we know that large animals produce them. And in most cases, the largest animals that lived in some of the sites that I investigate or at the time of, of the, when the, the rocks were deposited, we know those came from dinosaurs. So size is important, also contents. If you can recognize chopped up bone, you know it was produced by a carnivore, chopped up leaves or chopped up shells, things like that. That will tell you, you know, what the animal was eating. And then finally, you look to see which animals left bones in the same sediments in which you find the coprolites. And you can then have a clue. Well, I have an herbivore coprolite that's giant, and in the same sediments, I found bones from large herbivorous duckbill dinosaurs. And so those are good candidates. Just a side note that duckbill dinosaurs had really wide, flattened mouths, and they could weigh 15,000 pounds. They lived around 85 million years ago. But unfortunately, because the feces, the fossilized feces, are separate from the, the bones, 
we always have to say probably produced by something. Yeah. And it's so you have to take a lot of context into when you're looking at these copper lights. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I was just about to ask, so bones can actually become fossilized inside of the coprolites? Actually, it's kind of surprising that coprolites can help preserve lots of things, not only bone. I mean, they're just a good vehicle for preserving things because believe it or not, they can become mineralized very, very quickly. And so not only have we observed bones inside of coprolites, we've preser- um, we found things that are much less, less sturdy than bones. We've actually found fossilized muscle tissue in some coprolites. Wow. We found, people have found fossilized insects, and some people have even found fossilized parasites. And that's because if you can imagine that you have something soft, like, okay, let's say we put an ant in a ice tray and we freeze it very quickly, that ice will help protect that ant from decomposing very quickly. And that's the same kind of thing if you have an ant in, in, in a fecal mass and it's mineralized very quickly, like freezing it, then that protects it from being destroyed in other ways from the environment. That's just crazy to think about. And so I'm sure coprolites have been able to tell you a lot about uh, different organisms that lived during the times that you were studying it. Yes, they, coprolites are kind of funny because some specimens are so well preserved, they can tell you lots of things. Other specimens are not preserved as well, but they can tell you other things. So What we learn from coprolites depends on how well they're preserved and what we see inside. Sometimes we learn about ancient animal diets. Sometimes we learn about how the material was preserved and how quickly it was preserved. And sometimes we get clues about what the ancient environment was like. That's really amazing. And is there anything that you found in your research studying coprolites that really surprised you? Yes, there have been some things. I mentioned that we found muscle tissue. Um, That was a real surprise. We were studying a fossilized Tyrannosaur coprolite. Okay, so this was not T-Rex. It was an older relative of T-Rex, but it was still a Tyrannosaur. And we found inside these weird preserved shapes and they look they were the size and shape of muscle cells which is muscle cells are basically meat right yeah and and we found that inside it i thought well this can't be this has gone through the digestive tract of a ty- tyrannosaur so we can't be seeing fossilized meat but the more we studied it we we did um chemical analyses and scanning electron microscopy and other analyses. And the best interpretation is we really did have fossilized muscle tissues. We, the morphology, we had uh, 
myofibular striations, which are very much like skeletal muscle tissue you see in our bodies or in, in other animals' bodies. So the fact that that could preserve so quickly was amazing. And it told us two things. One, that the meat wasn't totally digested when it went through the Tyrannosaurus digestive tract. And actually, that makes sense because after I started working on this, I found that people have looked at dog feces and have found undigested muscle tissue in dog feces. And you figure a, a dog has a skull that's maybe, you know, if it's a very large dog, maybe 10 inches long. But a Tyrannosaur had a skull that was probably three feet long and they couldn't <laughs> chew. So they would gulp. And if they had rapid transit of the of the food through their digestive tract, it would not necessarily be exposed to digestive uh, juices. So not only did it go through quickly and it wasn't dissolved by digestive juices, but then it was mineralized really, really fast before the bacteria could decompose everything. And we have evidence for that happening too, because some people have taken modern shrimp, dead shrimp, and they buried them, and they have documented mineralization of the muscle tissue of the shrimp within weeks. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. So in this case, we knew, right? Well, I mean, we could presume from the shape of Tyrannosaur teeth that they were meat eaters. But in this particular case, what this coprolite told us more about was the process of digestion, the processes of digestion and of fossilization. So that was, that was really a fun study. And then another study we did is where we found uh, a coprolite from a very large herbivorous dinosaur also had chopped up pieces of crustacean in it. We don't know what kind of crustacean because we only saw bits and pieces of the, the exoskeleton, but maybe something like a crab. So it was amazing to think that some herbivorous dinosaurs actually also ingested crustaceans. <laughs> I can't even imagine how cool that must have been to figure that out for the first time. <laughs> it was it was tons of fun. Yeah, it, that's what I like studying coprolites because we never know what we're going to find. That's so great. And you also do research into just ecosystems during the Mesozoic era, which is like the era of the dinosaurs. So were there any differences in climate and composition of the ecosystems between then and now? Well, in the Mesozoic, it was a greenhouse environment. So that means that we had no ice at the poles. Um, the whole planet was uh, warmer, although the distribution of warmth, people are still trying to understand that. So it definitely was a warmer environment. It was a, it was a, it was, the climate was different. One of the reasons why it was so warm was because there was a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which traps in a bunch of heat. Carbon dioxide is also one of the main things causing climate change today. But probably some of the, in addition to that, the most important differences between the Mesozoic ecosystems and our ecosystems was that 
they were just different organisms. You know, we had the the huge non-avian dinosaurs like like duckbill dinosaurs and tyrannosaurs, and then we had um, other smaller organisms that we just don't have today. And that would those interactions with each other and with the ecosystems would make those ancient ecosystems significantly different than they are today. Absolutely. And it, it, I would have loved to go back and see all of that and see all these differences. And I'm sure like in your work, you're just picturing that all the time, probably. <laughs> yes, I wish. Oh, it, we often just wished we had one of those, you know, like a Mesozoic cam that was <laughs> recording things so we could really see if all of our, our, our hypotheses about what these animals looked like and how they interacted with the environment, if, if they were true or not. Yeah, definitely. And you also mentioned something about how it was a much warmer climate back then. So how, how are you able to figure stuff like that out? What kind of tools do you use? Because it happened so long ago. Well, right. Um, there are a lot of people do paleoclimatic studies and they look at different kinds of, of uh, what we call paleoclimate proxies. For example, sometimes you can look at the relative percentages of teeth in leaves. In modern environments, that gives you an idea of the temperature. Or you can look at the stable isotopes of certain microfossils like foraminifera. Foraminifera are tiny single-celled organisms that have shells, and because of their shells, they show up well in the fossil record. Which can also, in modern environments, they indicate what the sea temperature was. And it's kind of interesting because in most cases, people who study climate, ancient climates, don't usually look at things like fossil feces, right? <laughs> But in one of our studies, we actually were able to extract um, organic compounds, organic geochemical compounds called biomarkers from coprolites. And that is a really active field in terms of trying to reconstruct ancient temperatures and, and other, or other aspects of ancient climates. And the very cool thing is that people use this tool very often to look at sediments. So they will take sediments and make a sample, extract um, biomarkers out of those and say, well, this indicates that the temperature was probably around this, this warm. But when you're looking at stratified sediments, you don't know whether those sediments represent five years, 10 years, a thousand years. <laughs> so you're kind of doing time averaging. You're averaging from a given period of time. But if we look at a coprolite, <laughs> fossil feces, you know that those animals sampled um, ancient organisms. And if it didn't go, you know, it might have taken a while for the the food to make the transit through the gut 
Well, we're talking probably about a maximum of a week, if not yeah. <laughs> a day or an hour of sampling. So it was really a really interesting way to look at a more focused paleoclimate estimate from simply looking at um, sediments. So what you're saying is coprolites are basically holding up the entire field of paleontology. <laughs> I wish I could say that. No, we can't say that. But but I what I would like to say is that oftentimes when people think about fossils, they're mostly talking about skeletal fossils. And people don't pay as much as much attention to trace fossils. And trace fossils are fossils that give that provide evidence of organisms activity. So they include fossilized feces, also tracks and burrows. So you don't see the body fossils in these, but they show where where organisms were doing things. And people often don't pay as much attention to those fossils, but those fossils are important too. Yeah, they're so important because they can tell you a skeleton can't tell you what the animal was doing, but a burrow might be able to tell you how they lived. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And is there any way that you can use your knowledge of the Mesozoic era to help the organisms that are struggling today? Well, I'd say that when we study the fossil record, it tells us things about rates of evolution, rates of extinction, and environmental change. So this, these, these studies give us perspectives on what is happening today. And one thing they do tell us is that evolution and extinction, these things are, are always happening. They've happened in the past. We've seen animals go extinct. We've seen animals, um, and I say animals, organisms, I mean, organisms go extinct and organisms evolve. So it's always going on. But the issue is that this is happening generally over long periods of time. And today we have changed, helped to change the climate so rapidly that evolution can't keep up with extinction. And that's why we are in another uh, anthropogenic mass extinction today. So I think what studying the fossil record can tell us is it just gives us perspective on what is happening today. Yeah, absolutely. And like you were saying, those extinction events happened over a long period of time, but this is a rapid amount of change that the world's not really ready for. Right, right, exactly. Definitely. And this is going to be my last question, but how can the average person support your research and the study of paleontology in general? Okay, I, I will give <laughs> I will give two answers to that. I think if we speak, if we're talking about paleontology, um, a very practical thing is if people are hiking around and they see fossils, the best thing to do is not to collect them because we get lots of information from the context of the fossils, what sediments they're found in, what, you know, the position they're found in. 
But if they see something, they should, it, it would really help us paleontologists if they would report it or take a picture and send us a picture. But from a more global perspective, I would encourage people to just keep learning about science, about how science is done, and how we gather evidence to make our best interpretations to try and figure out how the the natural world works. Because I think understanding how science works is how everyday people can help support science and help us all work toward um, understanding and making this a better world. I completely agree. I've said this on so many of my episodes, but I feel like education is the key to really saving the world and helping science in general. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I want to thank you again for inviting me. Wow, who knew that dinosaur poop could tell us so much about ancient ecosystems and the animals that live there? I don't know about you, but I was completely shocked when I found out that dinosaur feces could even become fossilized. Karen taught me so much about this underappreciated field of paleontology and how we can relate it to the present day. If you want to learn more about paleontology, you should definitely go check out the Paleontological Society. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of coprolites. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. Listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray, brought to you every Wednesday.